name is Timmy, I'm a senior. I'll be reading 1 Corinthians uh, 7, 6-9, and 31-35. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. For this world is in its present form is passing away. I would like y'all to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, about how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we have three months of life under our belts from when we began pulling up a chair and listening to you Help us see our relationships in a whole different way. We are like the Corinthians. You changed their lives. You woke them up to yourself, and then it changed everything they were in relationship with. They had all these questions. They were sending letters to Paul left and right. What what does this mean for work? What's this mean for marriage? What's this mean for sex? What's this mean for friendships? And you have been so kind to pull the curtains back and to show us and to teach us and to encourage us and to always remind us that these changes only come through your son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, your past and your present and your future love for us. And so thank you for this semester, Father. Even tonight, would you do it one last time? Would you show us um, not just your thoughts on singleness, but show us your son again? Pray this in his name and power. Amen. Well, we're not even supposed to be really talking about this tonight. It wasn't my plan. We were supposed to be talking about marriage tonight. We'd set ourselves up so perfectly for that. A few weeks on friendship, forging those deeper friendships. Then we kind of spent a week on talking about dating as friendship. Then we spent a week after that talking about dating to marry Last week, we talked about the power and the purpose of sex and how that's a safe, beautiful bonding thing inside of a marriage. It was set up perfectly. And then I had a conversation with Casey on Monday that then led to more conversations with Anna uh, the two nights after that. And that's the reason we're talking about singleness tonight. (laughs) Because the more I heard them out, the more I thought about it, the more convinced I was that's what we've got to talk about as we finish this semester-long series. And there's a few reasons why. And I'm not beating up on you, but it seems to be the most relevant topic. Uh, As I accidentally (laughs) pointed out a few weeks ago, I did not intentionally throw you all under the bus that night either, but most of y'all aren't dating, so there's that. Nobody except Nathan, Nicole, Rob, Anna, and Felicity, and me in this room is married. So even if you're dating, um, you still fall into the category of um, someone who does not have a husband or a wife, and so you're single. And so 
this is a topic that's applicable to everybody in the room, whether you're dating or not. For those of you who want to be married one day, for 75% of the guys and 66% of the girls, all of your 20s will be sent single. For about 35% of the guys and 30% of the girls, your 30s will be spent single. And uh, as I was talking to Casey and Anna, I was like, I just didn't think much about this when I was in college. I can't recall, like, thinking of myself as a single person. I was just, like, one of the boys and just wanted to kind of do my thing. And I was like, I didn't have a category for this. So I was like, how relevant really is this? So maybe even, especially you guys, you might not think of yourself that way right now because you're surrounded by friends everywhere you go. Some of you ladies, too. You're surrounded by friends everywhere you go. But this is one of those things that hits different tonight versus maybe two years from now, three years from now. Imagine a potential scenario. I'm not trying to depress you. I'm just trying to be real. You have survived the rush hour commute home from work. It's now 630 because it took you an hour and a half to get home. And you pull back up to your condo in Buckhead or Decatur or wherever you're going to live. And Bachelor Ben used to get these frozen burritos at Trader Joe's, so you're defrosting a frozen burrito from Trader Joe's. And by the time it uh, heats up and you're eating your dinner, you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm about to have to get back in the car and fight traffic to go to this weird young adults thing at my church or this ministry that I got in plug. Do I really want to get back into my car and go back across town to walk into a room full of people that I don't know and you decide to go, but on your way out the door, you pass your fridge, and your fridge is full of save the dates for all your other friends and their marriages. And the littlest things can trigger you, like even like going to the store and it's like buy one, get one free stuff, and you're like, oh, I'm alone. <laughs> I'm not prophesying and saying that's going to be your future, but I'm just trying to be real. That very much could be the future for a lot of people. <laughs> so, if those statistics pan out, and if the vast majority of us in the room um, will live some kind of existence in the next 10 years, it's going to include uh, um, some of that or a lot of that. We need God to break in and to give us a new mindset about that. Because I'm thankful, I pray that there would be a little relief of laughter because it was either going to be dread and doom of like, what is this man doing the first two minutes of his talk tonight? Or a little bit of nervous laughter. But for some of you, that stuff's not so funny. It's painful. It's scary. And for that reason, too, we need the Lord to come in and to reorient us to, to bring our hearts and our heads to a place where we could actually, without any cynicism in our hearts, say, I can see how singleness is something that Paul, that God, that Jesus calls a gift. That's a tall order. Now listen, um, as we need God to come and we need to hear him out, I got to warn you, what you're going to hear is, is likely not what you might have heard growing up. And the reason why is because uh, both in church culture and in popular culture, there's a lot of myths of singleness that are rampant and floating around. 
and very few of them are even seen and known. They're myths, like people who lived in you know, Greek mythological times, they didn't know some of those things were myths. They thought it was a reality. We think these are realities, but we believe them, and they're not true. And they are running rampant in the church and in culture. And so they're affecting all of us at some level. Now, what do I mean by a myth? I mean like a popular misunderstanding that are passed along as true. In the church with the stamp of biblical authority, with, with divine authority, down from Mount Sinai, this is the way it is. In culture, it's just kind of a truism, an assumption. This is the way it is. It's the way the world is, how, how it goes. And we don't tend to scrutinize myths because we don't know they're myths. We don't kick the tires on it. We're just like, oh, yeah, that's true. Casey was telling me, even, even in a seminary class that she took recently um, on human sexuality, she said the professor, you could tell on some of the stickier, more complicated topics, um, transgenderism or homosexuality or, or divorce, very careful, very precise, very thoughtful in his language and the, and the resources that he brought to the conversation. But when it came to the lecture on singleness, um, just seemed to be kind of passing along some half-baked biblical explanations or cliches. It's, I have heard these things. They've been said to me. I have, I'm guilty of sometimes passing these along unwittingly. You might be a carrier of some of these mythologies, no matter where you grew up. So what are some of these myths of singleness that are alive in um, Christian circles today? And Here's why we're going to look at what they are, because they poison our view of singleness. Now, if you are single right now, what it does is it poisons um, your sense of what God is doing in your life right now. It poisons what you think he's doing in your life right now. It poisons your ability to engage and to join him in the mission he's calling you right now in your life. That's what's on the line here. So what are these myths? Um, I'm going to outsource this to um, a former RUF intern, a brilliant woman, a Bible teacher, Paige Benton-Brown. She wrote an article a while ago, but it's pretty famous. It's made the rounds for more than a decade. It's quoted in a lot of books that you might read on these topics. She wrote an article called Singled Out for Good. You should read it. And in it, she itemizes some of these mythologies are these warped theologies of singleness, these half-baked attempts to explain singleness. How do you end up single? Why are you single? Why are you still single? Here's a few of what she said, and she's got this, she's just brilliant wit, and so she both shares the myth and then kind of myth busts, deconstructs it with a line or two. Here's a few of them just for an example. This is what these myths can sound like, especially in the church. As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. Once you kind of get to the point where you don't even want a husband or a wife, he'll be like, okay, you're ready. Here's a husband or here's a wife. She says, as though God's blessings are ever earned by our contentment. As if married people like attained that level and God's like, here you go. Here's a romantic relationship because you weaned your heart from any desire for that. Or, you're single because you're too picky. She says, as though God is thwarted by our pickiness and just needs broader parameters in which to work. As if our immaturity or our pickiness constrains him. Or, 
before you can marry someone wonderful, the, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. I mean, that's believable because it kind of, it's like slogany, almost rhymes. As though God grants marriage as a second blessing to those who are sufficiently sanctified. Or maybe less spoken, but just as often felt, singleness can feel like God's plan B, his JV team. Those who, who d- kind of didn't perform high enough in the tryout, or when all else fails romantically, when the musical chairs of dating ends and everybody else is paired up, but you're the one left without a chair, here's the consolation prize, the gift that nobody wants, the gift of singleness. That's what the warped theology sounds like in Christian circles sometimes. What does it sound like in kind of secular culture, in popular culture? And by the way, if you were raised in the church, you were raised in a church that's in this culture. And so both of these will apply to you. Both will be found in your blood tests. What does it sound like there? Um, In culture today, it might sound like, how could I ever be fulfilled and happy if I don't find that perfect someone out there for me? How could I ever be happy um, if I don't find that soulmate or have that camaraderie or that friendship? Or how could I ever be a full human being if I'm not having sex or have no outlet, no legitimate outlet to express my sexuality? How could celibacy be anything good in my future? I want you to think with me through those mythologies, the ones that exist in the church, the ones that exist outside of the church. Think with me, what are the godless lies buried underneath them? There's a few. One is this this assumption that married people are the haves in God's family and unmarried people or single people are the have-nots. And specifically what the single people don't have is some crucial aspect of life that the married people get to get, like, get in on, get to enjoy. So there's haves and there's have-nots. And the have-nots are lacking something crucial to fulfillment, to happiness, to satisfaction, to a meaningful life. Um, there is embedded in some of this, too, uh, a dishonor of singleness, which will make more and more sense as we continue to talk, but there's a, a dishonor embedded in it that single people... Um, aren't quite ready for the big leagues of dating and marriage. You're not sanctified enough. You're not mature enough. Your heart's not undivided enough. And it's a meritocracy. Marriage is this little, this shiny little gift that God only gives to those with a 95 or better. Um, Any married person can tell you um, they're married by the mercy and grace of God and not much else. But that's a lie that's embedded um, underneath that. There's a lie embedded in it, especially in the cultural views, but also in our views that romantic love or sex or marriage are ultimate, and a person cannot be happy without that apocalyptic romance that we've talked about the past few weeks. You can't be you uh, without that. So listen, these myths make God so mad He hates them. And the reason he hates these myths and these lies is because there are very real sons and daughters who he prizes and loves 
and takes seriously and cheers on who are agonized by these myths, tormented by these myths, confused by these myths, dishonored by these myths. Uh, especially those who at the moment are, are called to singleness. Now, I need to define that phrase real quick before we push on. What does it mean to be called to singleness? Um, you never really know if that's temporary or permanent. If you're, not, uh, if you're a man and you don't have a wife or a, a woman and have a husband right now, you're called to singleness. Uh, let me save you a decade of torment. God has never called you to sit in a corner and analyze, am I called to singleness for the rest of my life? You can say that on your deathbed. If you die and you've never been married, you can say definitively, I was called to singleness. It's not something he calls you to necessarily like pull over the car and get into analysis paralysis. Do I have the gift? Am I called to this forever? It's a temporary thing, just like marriage is a temporary calling. Plenty of people who were married because of legitimate or illegitimate divorce or because of the death of their spouse. But singleness is, is a temporary calling, sometimes is permanent, but we can only really say that in retrospect. But here's the problem with these myths, whether it's, whether it's the rest of this year or the next year or the next decade or the rest of your life, here's the danger of these myths and the necessity of us calling them out and crucifying them and expelling them from our mindset and our hearts. When you start thinking of yourself in this dishonorable way as passed over, not enough, less than, a have not, you tell me, what do you think your engagement level is going to be in the kingdom of God on mission with Jesus? How do you use and, and serve other people with a gift that you don't even know that you have because you've believed the propaganda? It's not a gift, it's a curse. How are we supposed to use gifts we don't know we have? How are we supposed to use gifts that we've been continually denying and suppressing? When that happens, it's not just you that loses, everyone around you loses too. The church loses, the world loses. That's what's on the line. And these myths breed cynicism and disenchantment and discouragement in our own hearts. Like we begin to think that like, what is wrong with me that God is holding back. He won't give me this gift that he's given to my two roommates. And that can get to a dark place pretty fast. These myths have the effect of pulling us away from the good plans that God has in our lives today, in this moment, in this season. And it makes us just feel unemployed. If you've ever had a mom or a dad or an older sibling who's been unemployed and you lived in the house with them, you see the havoc unemployment can wreak. It, dis it demoralizes. It really quickly cuts into your sense of identity, your sense of purpose, like why get up in the morning? What's the purpose of living? I don't have anything to do. I don't know my role. I don't know my place. Christians can feel unemployed in the kingdom of God, in the church, in the mission of God. When we, do, when we lack clarity about this, when we deny it, when we roll our eyes at it, the ways we tend to think about singleness is the exact opposite of how God describes singleness. And more immediately, how Paul described singleness. Paul said this in this first, um, this is all from 1 Corinthians 7, uh, a chunk from the earlier part of the chapter, a chunk from the end of it. But Paul says in, in verse 7, 
I wish that all of you Corinthians were as I am. Now, he's not saying, um, I wish that y'all were from Israel just like I am, or I wish you were a man just like me, or I wish you were 5'8 just like me. He's in this context saying, I wish you were single like me. But, um, in other words, but uh, God has distributed these different gifts of singleness and marriage as he sees fit. Not all of you have this gift. But Paul says, I, I hope you have it, though. And he said it with a straight face. And um, his life is a testimony to this. He personally experiences singleness as a gift. He feels it as a gift. He's not manipulating them, conning them into something that's terrible. He believes what he is holding out for these Christians um, is a good path. And he's not talking about it as if it's a consolation prize for those who didn't get picked at the kickball game but a positive calling, a positive gift. He says in, in so many words, I really wish that all of you um, were single like me. In other words, if you're single, whether because of the stage of your life or because in his context, your husband died and you became a widow or your wife died and you're a widower or there was a divorce or a breach in the covenant, if you're single, Paul says, you're not in some embarrassing, shameful situation that you need to find the quickest way out of. He said, it's not embarrassing. It's not shameful. You're not missing out on the good life. And in fact, he says, you're good to remain as you are unless you feel like you can't with integrity before the Lord. Uh, he says here, um, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. And he's not just saying like, um, you know, if you're so horny you can't stop having sex, then you should get married. What a low view of marriage. And what an antithetical view of marriage to the way we've been talking about it the past month. But he's saying, look, if you are so drawn to that uh, with another person, um, Paul is saying, I'm not binding your conscience to remain single. That's a legitimate and good expression of that, um, to get married to that person. Now listen, this was super, super countercultural. It was unprecedented in this day and age. It's still countercultural today, but unprecedented in this day and age for a Jewish man to be celebrating his singleness. No Jewish man would celebrate his singleness. Marriage and the children that marriage gave you and the lineage that it gave you was ultimate. It was ultimate. It was the ideal for everybody. It was the standard for everybody. And if you didn't reach that standard, if you were a woman who never married or a man who wasn't married, something, you were, something was wrong with you. It was seen as kind of a subhuman form of life, not ideal. So for Paul to be um, telling these, these, these uh, Greeks, these Corinthians, what he is telling them is unprecedented. Christianity was the first and only religion of Paul's day that legitimized singleness as a viable way of life, as a good way of life. Not as you've missed the best, this'll do, but as marriage is good, singleness is good. A gift of God that brings flourishing to and through you, a gift of God that brings flourishing to and through you. Nobody else was doing this. Nobody else was saying this. No other religion. It was always this. Even still, that this is countercultural then and now, we can still look down our noses at this gift. 
Um, it's been funny observing my kids on Christmas morning every year. They love the gift that they got until what? You know, until they see their brother or sister open the gift that they got. And all of a the sudden, they don't like their gift anymore. They want that gift. The grass is greener on the other side. And now there's little fights breaking out about like, I'm going to steal your gift or I want your gift. And there's something in us that, that looks at the gifts that other people have and just immediately thinks that's got to be better. I want that. What I have is deficient. So for the past few Christmas mornings, there's side conversations Anne and I are having with him. We're trying to prevent a, a full-blown meltdown on Christmas morning beneath the Christmas tree. Where we're having little conversations with him, it's like, Addie, uh, we're having to remind her, you wanted this. You talked all summer about this. I know it's been a few months since you mentioned, but all summer you wanted this. Um, this gift might have to grow on you, um, but this is, we know you. You're going to love this. This fits you. This is going to open up so many new doors, help so many parts of your personality blossom in the years ahead. So we're off kind of trying to talk our kids back into the gift to say it's going to grow on you. You don't need Eli's gift. You don't need Lena's gift. They wouldn't fit you. She's, she's two years younger than you. You're not going to like her gift. The secret to a growing and calm contentment and singleness Regardless of whether you're thinking it's the next couple of years or the rest of your life, the secret to a growing calm contentment and singleness is not trying to figure out all the reasons you might be single. It's not trying to figure out the secret will of God. Like I said earlier, have you called me to be single the rest of my life? But it is experiencing the goodness of the Father's heart, the gift giver. The more you know the heart of the one who gives the gift of marriage and singleness, the more calm contentment and gratitude and goodness you'll find in the gift. Let me ask you this question. Um, Did any of y'all have a crazy grandparent, crazy aunt, crazy uncle, or a weird friend who gave you terrible presents? The second you opened it, you're like, oh, you don't know me. You put on the fake smile and you're like, please, Lord, let there be a receipt so I can get the money and go get something I actually like. Do you think God is a gift giver like that? When you open up the gifts he's given you at at November 15th, 2023, you have a gift. It's one or the other right now. Do you you believe when you open up the gifts that God has, has given to you that he's that crazy uncle, crazy aunt who just swing and a miss every Christmas? You're like, this is triple XL. I wear medium. What is this shirt anyway? Who would wear this? Or are you learning his heart and becoming persuaded enough of his love to give him a chance and to let the gift perhaps grow on you? Or to ask him, why'd you um, let me know? I'm curious why you got this for me. Have you ever had a friend who did give good gifts, good gifts or a parent? You know, like they had a study abroad in Spain and they're like, I brought you back like a piece of like papyri with the, your name written in like Spanish or I went to Israel and brought this thing back with like these Hebrew letters and it's your favorite lyric from a song and you look at it and you're like blown over by how known you feel, how seen you feel. Who is God to you? The one who strikes out and misses every time. 
or the one who brings you something back that when you open it, you begin to cry because you're like, he gets me, he sees me, he knows me, he knows what I need right now. Paige Benton Brown again, she put it so well. I'll pull this up so you can see it. But she said, um, accepting singleness, whether it's temporary or permanent, does not hinge on speculation about answers that God has not given us to our list of whys, but it hinges on the celebration of the life that he has given. I'm not single because I'm too spiritually unstable to deserve a husband, nor because I'm too spiritually mature to need a husband or a wife. I'm single because God is so abundantly good to me because this is his best for me. Whatever this is right now, right now is his best for me. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single, if you are, or for me, being married. A cosmic impossibility. John Newton, I'm paraphrasing, but John Newton put it this way. Providence, or God ordaining every detail, every detail in your life is the expression of perfect love. And then he basically said, if there was a more loving way for God to be dealing with you than what he's doing right now, he would be doing that and not this. That doesn't eliminate confusion. That might create some confusion of, wow, this hurts. This feels unsustainable. How could this be perfect love? But Newton said, but if there was a better way for him to be loving you, how is he perfectly loving you right now? If there's a better, superior way out there, what he's doing in your life right now is the expression of his perfect love and care for you. Whether it is in difficulty in singleness, difficulty in marriage one day, joy in singleness, joy in marriage one day. This is when we begin to see his heart come out. And it's not just that we see the heart of the gift giver, but the gift begins to actually look better to us or good to us. Christians can say, Paul could say, Scripture will say, brothers and sisters, nobody is missing out. Big picture. Yes, married people are missing out on some of the beauties and the gifts of singleness, and single brothers and sisters are missing out on some of the beauties and gifts of married people, but big picture, satisfaction, contentment, joy, peace inside, None of you are missing out. There are no haves and have-nots in the family of God. There's just haves. You have him. And you have his love. So our first order of business is considering this bottomless goodness and generosity of the heart of your God for you. And as you do, you will begin to wrap your head and your heart around how this, right now, could be good for you, and in a second, good for others, good for others. So we gotta answer this big question before we get practical and end. What is, what is the gift of singleness? What is it? Paul says, um, each of you has your own gift from God. And in this context, he means a gift of marriage, a gift of singleness. What is that gift of singleness? Does it mean some supernatural, magical, special ability to be single? Like, is the gift of singleness? I don't want to be married. I'm content to be all by myself. I love being alone on a Friday night. I have this stress-free sense of just kind of, it's just me. 
in the rest of the future, or you somehow more easily bear the burden of singleness. That can't be what it means. That can't be what the gift of singleness means. Um, Because that view presumes that singleness is a bad thing, that you would need a whole heck of a lot of medicine to, 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 to deal with. God's basically like, I'm going to give you so much Novocaine to numb the pain of singleness because it's so terrible. What does that say? That undoes everything we've said. How's that a gift? How's that goodness? How's that flourishing? The gift of singleness can't be some supernatural ability um, to kind of, you know, lift the burden of singleness to where you're just fine with it. That view also presumes that marriage is ultimate, that you cannot be happy, you cannot be satisfied uh, without being married or without having that person, without having sex. And we've already said that can't be true either. Jesus, the perfectly fulfilled human being, the only person you could ever look at in history and say, he had it all. He had it all. And he's a single man in his mid-30s when he gives his life for his people. This view also doesn't fit the experience of single people. Um, You are them, so ask yourself how you feel. Ask older brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers in the church how they feel. Um, But it's a myth to think that every single person doesn't want to be married. Or that contentment in singleness means, I don't want to be married anymore. Um, or they have this supernaturally stress-free state of mind with, with where they're at right now. Nor does having the gift of marriage mean that, um, sorry, having the gift of singleness make it easier to bear that. Scripture also talks about marriage as a gift. Paul does here, but throughout Scripture, he who finds a wife, or in the context talking to these young boys, you could say, she who finds a husband finds a good thing. Scripture exalts singleness. Scripture exalts marriage. They're both gifts. But the gift of marriage doesn't make it easier. If you have a paper Bible, glance down at 1 Corinthians 7.28. Paul says, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I wish to spare you from that. As plain as day, marriage is hard, and it is good. And the difficulty never erases the goodness, and the goodness never erases the difficulty. It is hard and good. Singleness is hard and good. And the goodness doesn't make it any less difficult, and the difficulty doesn't make it any less good. So the married in the room and the single in the room are all on equal ground in that regard. God has given us gifts that are both uphill and good. So what is the gift? We've said what it's not. What is the gift? I learned so much preparing for this because I'd never heard this. And as soon as I heard it, I'm like, oh my goodness, how did I not ever see this? A lot of you have been around for discussions in freshman fellowship or when we do the leadership meetings in the spring about how Paul always uses the word gift. Gifts, ringing any bells, spiritual gifts. He's talking about Things that God has given you, that unique things God has given you in order to build others up. We usually talk about it as kind of your superpowers. These supernaturally given gifts that are powerful and 
give you a unique ability to impact and bless the lives of other people. That's how Paul uses the word gift every time he uses the word gift. Things God's given you to give away to others in service and love for them. So, singleness, just like marriage, is a superpower to serve others in a way. So for for married people to serve others in a way single people can't, for single people to serve others in a way married people can't. Does that that mean it's easier? Um, Some of you have the gift of leadership. You're leading. You're leading your peers in RUF. You're leading in your local church. You're leading on campus. You tell me, does having the gift of leadership mean it's just this effortless, no problems, the path is cleared, everything I touch turns to gold? No. It means God has given you an amplified, intensified ability to lead, but all of the challenges and obstacles that remain for everybody else are there for you too. It's hard, it's lonely, makes you stay up at night, you get criticized, it's scary, you're all on your own sometimes even when you have the gift of leadership. Some of you have the gift of faithfulness. It doesn't mean your schedule is any more open than other people in your community group's schedule. You have just as much on your plate, but you have an eye for what your presence week after week after week can do in that group. And you're the reason people have begun to open up because they know who's gonna be in the room and trust is built. You're the glue that holds it together. You don't have an easier route than everybody else, but you have an increased ability to bless that group in that way with your faithful presence. So having the gift of singleness doesn't mean you don't ever get lonely, you don't long to be married, or that you necessarily always have free time and availability, that you're never busy. It just means God's given you an outsized, amplified ability to make a unique impact and to show his goodness to the world. Same with married people. Do y'all see what's happening here? This is turning completely inside out the cultural view of marriage and the cultural view of singleness. Uh, America says, get married to fulfill yourself. Use this other person to be happy. It's this parasitic ideal. Kind of suck life and vitality out of your spouse. If you marry the right one, you'll be happy. I sure hope they don't let you down one day. Then the same with singleness. I, I was in this place for a long time. I want to be single, not to, not to serve. I want to be single because I love being a bachelor. I don't like having to ask anybody how to use my time or have to be anywhere. I wanted to kind of do what I wanted to do with whoever I wanted, whenever I wanted. That's the cultural, that's the cultural motivation behind a lot of people who, um, some people who, who, who are single. It's, a self-fulfill, it's, a, it's self-fulfillment, personal happiness. Scripture is turning that inside out. Singleness is a gift to turn yourself outward towards others and serve them. Marriage is a gift to turn yourself outwards to serve the other, mainly your wife or your husband, to lay down your life for them and the church, to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters and for the world. Do you all remember a few weeks ago Man, it was actually a few months ago. This was the second talk in this series. Do you remember when we talked about 2 Corinthians 5, St. Paul writing to the same church when he said, do you all know why Jesus died for you? You remember what he said? That you would no longer live for yourselves 
or have to live for yourselves, but that you would live for him who gave himself for you. In other words, you're free now. You're free. The chains of narcissism have been cut. And God has set you free to serve and love. That's what's happening here. And God has given us a particular lane or another particular lane in which to not live for ourselves anymore, but to begin this process of him making us more like Jesus, who did not live for himself, but lived for his father and lived for you and laid down his life for you. How could this Jesus, who gives the gift of marriage or singleness, give it so that you could go off on your own and suck other people dry for your own happiness? How does that work? He poured out his life that you might be free to be a human being again who pours out your life in this context or that. I want to get specific. We're going to be done. But what did this look like um, in my past life? I was 30 years old um, when we got married, and it was 28 when we got married. And so we had about a decade um, of kind of post-grad life um, in the church as single people, in the world as single people. This is what the power and the impact of Anna's gift of singleness when she realized it's a gift, and boy, is it powerful. And there's specific people I get to use it with to bless. Hers was a ministry of presence. Um, If there was a girl who got admitted to, she was a girl's discipleship director out at a church in Colorado. If there was a girl that got admitted to the psych ward, guess who was there at midnight? Families on the holidays. Anna would go around, when when I'd go out to visit when we were dating, she would go around to like 10 different families Thanksgiving evening. About a dozen families called her their daughter. They shared their gift of marriage and allowed Anna to come into their life and to be a part of that family as the church, she shared her gift of singleness, which at that time in her life meant agility, spontaneity, availability, massively sacrificial service, a ministry of physical presence. She can't do that anymore, not nearly to that extent. Um, Same with me. We're having a a bonfire for the senior guys this Friday. You know how long it took to schedule that? A month and a half. That's a, piece, that's, a, that's a unique power and gift of singleness that I miss and I grieve. For me, and this is not me tooting my horn, this is me saying, look, what, look how beautiful this is when Jesus opens your eyes to this. It happened in this building when I was sitting in your seats. But when there was a need at the church, me and my friends took care of it. We didn't even ask. The lines in the parking lot needed painting. We just bought paint and did it. A widow's lawn need mowing? We just showed up and did it. My Hebrew professor in seminary, she just lost her husband to cancer. It snows in Philadelphia every week, a foot at a time. She had hurt her arm and shoulder lifting her husband in and out of bed in his last weeks. She couldn't shovel the snow. So half the people in the class showed up every time it snowed to shovel her entire sidewalk and driveway so that she could get out. We had the time at the drop of a hat, the flexibility, the power. Some of you, I've heard stories, some of you old couples in your church who have grown children on the other side of the continent and y'all would go play Scrabble with them once a week because you could, because it blessed them. Or you'd ask them to teach you how to knit or how to work on cars. You honored them. Guys, this is... 
God's vision for his church. And it is all temporary because Paul says this present world in its present form is passing away. In other words, this is a temporary calling. Marriage is a temporary calling. Singleness is a temporary calling. Uh, one scholar said um, it's, it's not that the Bible says there is no marriage in heaven. It's that God says there's one marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's your marriage, your union, your one fleshness with Jesus Christ himself. Singles are showing the world and the church in a unique way that only they can do the sufficiency of the gospel. My hope is in another world and in another person, not in financial security, not in a family, not in a family tree. And the married folks in the church the mothers and, sisters, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters are showing to the world the shape of the gospel, of how a husband cares for and serves and sacrifices himself for, her, for his wife and how a wife serves and sacrifices herself for her husband. We together are on stage, none of us the main characters, Jesus the main character, us the supporting actors, as he shows the world and you his goodness and his sufficiency and his beauty. That's your gift for however long you have it. And if he gives you another gift later on, it's really the same calling, just in a different context, to give your life away for the people around you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are going to have to spark our imaginations. You're going to have to kindle our hearts. You're going to have to really cure the cynicism or the jadedness or just the disenchantment that can be in our hearts sometimes or sometimes the fear sometimes the grief would you work in us by your spirit open our eyes to this beautiful vision of our life on stage with you in the spotlight and us in the background pray this in your name